I'd rather have more money tomorrow than yesterday. I'd prefer that, but that's not my key driver. My key driver is to live a life of value and meaning, to actualize the best version of myself as I can. I'm Gil Galanos, and welcome to StoryMark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them, and the mark they leave. On today's show, businessman, author, and activist, Seth Siegel. In 1992, Seth Siegel co-founded the Beanstalk Group, representing clients from Coca-Cola to Harley-Davidson to AT&T. He eventually sold the company and became an author of several successful books, including Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World. And if that wasn't enough, in 2002, he produced the Broadway revival of Men of La Mancha, gathering three Tony Award nominations. And on top of all of that, Seth is very involved in several nonprofit organizations. I'm so inspired by Seth's endless energy and remarkable talent for success in various endeavors. He's unafraid to diversify his business, literary, and activist pursuits and creates problem-solving with curiosity and joy. Seth grew up in a modest community in Queens, New York, and was unsure what he aspired to be, despite early encouragement from his father. My father was frustrated that he had never become a lawyer, and he frequently would give me his opinion that he thought it would be wise for me to be a lawyer. I was always facile with words and always comfortable on my feet and always interested in politics and public policy and society. So it was partially, I'm sure, him trying to vicariously live through me and also partially him thinking that I might be a good lawyer. Also, where we grew up, we didn't know about a lot of different professions. The richest guy in the community, I think, was the local dry cleaner. There were doctors, there were lawyers, there were accountants. My father was an accountant. And there were a lot of blue-collar people. So it wasn't like there were a thousand different ideas of what I might do. I came to understand how glorious the world is and that there are as many professions as one can imagine. You went to Cornell College. What did you study at school? In my junior, senior year of high school, my sister had taken very ill and she was hospitalized for most of that time. She was older than me and, and some friends of hers from her high school years that were already at college came to visit her one day and they said to my mother, Seth really loves studying interesting stuff. He should go to Cornell University. He should go to the School of Industrial Labor Relations. He would like that study. My mother misheard them or something. She told me there's a school at Cornell called International and labor relations. And I didn't know what labor relations were, but I thought, wow, international relations, that sounds like fun. Yeah, I'll do that. So I applied to the ILR school thinking that I stood for international. And then somewhere along the way, I get a form and it says industrial. And I was like, what the heck is that? <laughs> but I got into Cornell and I got some significant scholarship besides. And, and the other choice was Queens College, living at home. So I spoke to my college advisor at this massive 5,000 student New York City public high school. And she said, you kidding me? Of course you can go to Cornell. There's no choice about that. So that's how I came to Cornell University. It was, not, it was not because I had any master plan for how I wanted to live my life. I, I admire kids today who take these big college tours, but I was not one of them. What's your first memory of Israel? My first memory of Israel actually wasn't even in Israel. I worked my way through college, and I was very fortunate in that I had been very creative. I didn't just do hourly jobs. I started a little business, which made me some money. And then I got hired by a local advertising agency to be a copywriter there that paid me very generously. And I came up with this idea that after I graduated, I would go live overseas for a period of time, learn a foreign language, and enjoy foreign cuisine, and 
you're assuming that I'm about to say Israel, but it wasn't. I was planning on going to Italy. I like pizza. I had taken a Renaissance art course. I thought it was fascinating. And I thought it'd be fun to be there. And I was starting to make plans to do exactly that. When in the senior year of college, the Yom Kippur War broke out. And it suddenly hit me with a sense of vulnerability of Jewish life and the fragility of the Jewish future. And it was truly within hours after Yom Kippur in 1973, I came back from synagogue services on campus at Cornell University. I'm sitting in my room and I'm thinking, this is crazy. I got to do something. And I had remembered reading somewhere that there were volunteers who came during the Six-Day War and came to help with harvest or things like that. And I thought, I'll do the same. Something's very romantic, you know? So I told my faculty advisor that I was thinking of dropping out for a semester or two, going to Israel and helping out. The war just started. And I received a phone call the next evening from the dean of my college at Cornell. And he said to me, these wars with Israelis tend to end pretty quickly. By the time you get there, you'll have given up a semester, and you may not even be adding that much value. He said, I have an idea for you. Why don't you consider studying there next year as a grad student? And indeed, almost immediately, I went to the University International Center, and I asked the woman there about colleges and universities in Israel. And I ended up applying to Hebrew University, Tel Aviv University, Haifa University. Hebrew University gave me a scholarship. And I ended up going there to study graduate studies there and had a fascinating time there. And so I suppose that was my first memory of Israel, is in my imagination. And then, then, of course, I showed up as a grad student. I finally got to study international relations. After you left Israel, you came back to Cornell for your law degree? That's right. I studied at the Cornell Law School, and then I worked as a lawyer for a few years, which I did not enjoy at all. And one day I had a business idea, and I left a very promising law career for this cockamamie business idea, which turned out to be life-changing. Tell me a little bit about the business Beanstalk, which is the licensing company. What was the idea? How did it come to life? At this time, it was then very common for fashion designers to permit others to use their names for sunglasses and shoes and fragrance, and they would pay a royalty for doing so. They'd make a payment of percentage of sales. And likewise, it was very common for cartoon studios to license their names for sleeping bags and pajamas and lunchboxes and things of that sort. But corporations did none of that, none of that. And the thought of my co-founder and I was that why couldn't corporations license their names? Coca-Cola, Harley-Davidson, Coppertone, Dr. Scholl's Jeep, names like that, it's very logical for them to be able to license their name onto an adjoining product or service. And we went around to corporate America saying, you have this opportunity. And that company ended up becoming a a very large company. And some many years later, I sold it to Ford Motor Company. And that was what kind of launched me on my formal not-for-profit career. What were some of the biggest challenges that you had to deal with? Well, look, the company grew in a meteoric way. We were in business about 24 years before I departed, and we grew by a spectacular growth curve every single year. We grew by double-digit top-line, meaning gross revenues, and bottom-line, meaning profits, every single year. Now, in the early years, that's relatively easy to do. I don't know many businesses that are past their 10th year that are still growing by more than 10% every single year, and we did. So the challenge for me was, and now I realize at the time I didn't, but I realize now it's of a piece with what I'm talking about with my desire to be involved in a lot of different things, is that I kept pushing the business in new directions. 
constantly reinventing us, constantly offering new services, thinking about new ways of providing value to our clients. Because the end point was to make a profit, but my interest was to make it that nobody would ever choose to go with a competitor. My interest was to make us so desirable and so service-laden that nobody in their right mind would ever choose someone else. And I remember that for years and years and years, we would continuously get every client we ever pitched. We never missed anybody. And then one time, I even remember the client, all these many years later, we pitched somebody, and it turned out that they went with somebody, not us. And the somebody, not us, it turned out was the college roommate of the <laughs> CEO of this company, of this organization. That makes sense. And well, I was, I was outraged. How could they do this? How could they do this? I mean, I was, after building the company and growing so quickly and everything going so well, I had one and one only lost client pitch. One and one only. And it was like, how dare they? How could they do this? And I went into, not literally a tailspin, but I was like, I walked around moping around for days. And I don't care if it's his best friend. How dare he do this? You know, but that was part of the reason that the business stayed so interesting to me is that it was the same name of the company. It was many of the same staff, but year after year, we kept growing and growing in value and interest in what we did for our clients and so forth. I know eventually you also started a few other companies. You know, when people speak of a serial entrepreneur, that really describes me very, very well. I like the challenge and the excitement of learning a new industry. And although it would be much more efficient and certainly more lucrative to double down and deepen my connection in a given industry. That would be the smart thing to do. <laughs> I look at life as a smorgasbord, as a buffet, and I want to meet as many people as I can and learn as much as I can. And since the goal really is not just to make money, I like making money and I want to make more of it. I'd rather have more money tomorrow than yesterday. I prefer that, but that's not my key driver. My key driver is to live a life of value and meaning, to actualize the best version of myself as I can. And that's why I've started numerous businesses. I've written three different books and I jump around a lot. It's not because I can't focus. It's because of a desire to embrace more, learn more about other things and things seem interesting. So I'll jump in. In 2002, you were a producer of a Broadway revival of Men of La Mancha. Yeah, so the story is the first Broadway show I ever saw when I was a little boy was Man of La Mancha. And the story of Man of La Mancha is, is from Don Quixote by Cervantes. Don Quixote is a farcical type situation where it's so unbelievably impossible to believe that anybody could believe what he believed and try to achieve what he tried to achieve. But I was very moved by the storyline. And then what happened was we moved apartments. And my wife said to me, you know, you can't keep all these records you have. So she said, but why don't you just buy some CDs of the albums that you really want to listen to, and you can listen to them that way. I said, good idea. And a year or two passes, and I have to drive my daughter about eight hours to somewhere and eight hours back. I think the way there will be easy. It'll be sweet. I'll talk to my daughter. But the way back is going to be misery. And then I remember that bag of CDs. On the way back, the first CD that I pop into the CD player in the car was Man of La Mancha. And partially it's because my mother died at a fairly young age, and it reminded me of that beautiful and sweet afternoon I spent with her, seeing a matinee of Man of La Mancha when I was a little kid. And But part of it also was just the fact that, you know, we live in such cynical times, and 
And it's, it was such a hopeful story. And I thought to myself, gosh, wouldn't it be fantastic if we could have something that, that would inspire people the way the story inspired me, to take on difficult tasks and to push yourself you know, to dream the impossible dreams, the anthem of the show was called. And I called a friend of mine at William Morris, a big talent agency, now William Morris Endeavor. And I said, can you get me the rights to the Broadway show? I want to explore putting it on Broadway. And he called me back next day and he said, you know, somebody just recently acquired the rights, but I can, I can put you together with him. So I got put together with that guy and he said that I'd love to have you as my partner. So we did it together. It was, it was really very fun and, and thrilling. Is it still running? No. no. Oh, God, no. <laughs> How long did it run for? It ran for about 11 months. Everything bad that could happen, happened. Do you consider that as a failure? I feel badly for the investors who didn't make back 100% of their investment. I also felt it was a failure because the production was not of the beautiful quality that I had dreamed it might be. It was darker than I thought it could have been and should have been. By the time we realized that, you know, an expensive set had been built and the director was already in place and he had set the stage in a certain way and it was impossible to change it. And so we sort of like said, okay, let's hope for the best. So I regret that it didn't achieve the inspiring goal that I wanted to be and it didn't achieve the artistic standard that I hoped it might. In 2015, you wrote a book, Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World, which I believe became one of the best-selling books in the water industry. Where did the idea come from? I had the sense that water scarcity was going to become a global problem. I had a sense that we were going to enter into a period of higher food prices, which was going to set off instability in a lot of poor countries. I had a sense that we were going to see water refugees, people having to leave certain places because they can't have enough water to grow food or to live their lives. And I started looking for solutions to this. And what I discovered, to my amazement, is that just about every solution that I found brought me back to Israel. And I thought, wow. And I'm very openly, passionately a supporter of Israel. I consider myself to be a Zionist, even though I don't live in Israel. I know that in some circles, calling yourself a Zionist is supposedly a badge of dishonor. I think anybody who thinks it's a badge of dishonor doesn't know what Zionism is. Zionism is the national liberation movement of the Jewish people. It says that the Jewish people can unite themselves as to the extent that people want to be united in their historic homeland, and that when built together, when come together, it will unlock uh, cohesion and genius in a way that can't be done when it's fractured and dispersed all over the world. And when I realized that all these solutions came out of Israel, it was a double whammy. It was, wow, I could tell this important story about water scarcity that I think, wow, this is so important that we can get policymakers and others start thinking about this. And at the same time, it's a positive story about Israel, which is, that's a plus. But the first and most important thing was making sure that our policymakers knew about this. And my publisher, when I met with them, they said, books like this, they tend to sell a couple of thousand copies. You know, They were utterly unexpected, as was I, <laughs> for the success of this book. I remember my editor called me like week two or three of the book. She says, we just found out your book's going to be on the New York Times bestseller list. It's really very exciting. Hardly a day goes by that I don't get a phone call or a message through my website where somebody isn't asking me if I could give them advice about water or if I could come speak to their organization or something involving some element of the water story. 
and uh, I now do a lot of work in the world of water, particularly around agriculture. And it's really extremely satisfying that relatively late in life, or not relatively, late in life, <laughs> I've you know developed this completely new career. Where I've never done anything in water. I've never did public policy stuff around water. I'm not an engineer. I have no special skills in science or technology. It's really a gift I've given myself. What is one story or something that you learned when you research or when you started working on this book? The sad thing that I learned is that policymakers almost always prefer not to take on difficult issues until it's a crisis. They prefer to not address a problem when it's a small headache because no one is clamoring for it to be solved. So they have no optionality left other than to address it as a crisis because then the public is willing to accept the inconveniences and the costs and so forth. And that's what makes Israel also stand out in terms of water, at least, is that they always have the mindset and the attitude that what they want to do is they want to get ahead of this. And the, and the same way that they thought about security, you know, military and intelligence, the same way they thought about immigration absorption, they were thinking about water at a very early stage. Zionist leadership understood that they could never build out this country unless there was adequate water supply. And so they jumped in and did what they had to do. And that's the story that I start the book with, and then I build it from there. Very recently, you released another book, but a very different book, called Other People's Words. Tell me more. When I was in 11th grade, I started collecting quotations. Not in a way that I was, like I said, oh, I'm going to start collecting quotations. I just started writing down things that moved me that I would see or read. And the scraps kept growing. And then as the years went on, the collection just grew to many, many, many thousands of quotations. About a million different topics. It could be business, it could be loneliness, it could be friendship, it could be about really many, many different areas. And my editor at St. Martin's Press, it's part of Macmillan Publishing, knew about this collection. And one day during COVID, she called me up and she said, I think that we could really benefit from an inspiring book. Could you comb through your collection and come up with a way to organize them? And the book came out. It also had a few printings and did very, very well. I'm sure you cannot answer what's your favorite, but... You know, I'll tell you something. When I'm asked what my favorite quotation is, I'd like to say about it that it's just like when, if you're a very large art collector, someone would say, what's your favorite piece of art? And the answer would be, it depends. It depends upon what your needs are at the moment. It depends on where you are spiritually and intellectually at the moment. That said, there are a few quotations that I've come back to over and over and over again and that have moved me deeply, and I'll share with you one of them. And that is from a 19th century British essayist named Matthew Arnold. And he wrote once, Life is not a having and a getting, but a being and a becoming. And the being part of that is living in the moment, enjoying the spirituality, if I may, of the human contact one-to-one. And the becoming is the what's next over the horizon for you. What's next? How can I grow yet higher? How can I be deeper? How can I have more? And so that's uh, a very favorite quotation. When I think about your resume... You get into different industries and you create some magic and you make a lot of money and success and it seems like you're enjoying yourself. 
What's your secret? Why do you think you're so successful in many different industries? I think I've always had two great skills in business. First great skill I think I've always had was being able to see slightly over the horizon. Even as a kid, I always was able to say, geez, I think this is going to happen. And in business, that's very valuable because you can prepare for something and have something ready for society when it needs it. The other great skill that I think I have is that I have an uncommonly good ability to spot people who are talented before they have any clue that they are talented. And to be able to bring on such people either as employees or as partners is a really very special thing to do. Because not only do you help them to live their lives to their fullest and to help them achieve great things in their lives, but you also are able to make a business that is a success. Not because necessarily inherently what you're doing in the business, but because you have the right personnel. And so I'm very happy that I have those skills and be able to do that and be able to do it again and again. I'd like to ask you a few questions that we ask each of our guests. What piece of advice do you wish that someone would have given you at the start of your journey? You know, I've never had a mentor in my entire career. If I look back on my life's story, I wish that somewhere early in my life and career, I had found somebody who had been around and had done things and could help me to measure decisions I'm making while I'm in the process of making them. I think it would have made life a lot easier and protected me from some bumps. What is the one thing that most people get absolutely wrong about you? I never pay any attention to what people say about me or think about me. I, I hate to have to reject your question, but I really don't pay any attention to that issue. What are you currently obsessed with? I've gotten very involved with an Israeli technology, an agricultural technology. It's a company called Endrip, like New Drip. And Endrip is a revolutionary idea in the world of agriculture. This is a technology that saves about half of the water. It increases the yield of the farmer. It cuts carbon emissions by about half or more. It cuts fertilizer use by half or more. And it's just a virtuous circle. And I've gotten very involved with the company as both an investor and more recently as an executive. And I'm really very excited about this technology. My last but not least question, what are you most optimistic about? I am such a believer in the genius of both the free market and the genius of people to solve problems that I am optimistic about the fact that the many problems that we face right now, whether it's the crisis of democracies or whether it's global security or climate change, poverty, racism, all these things, sooner or later, solutions come to the fore. I think we are on a positive trajectory on all of them because the way that the, the marketplace of ideas and the free market drive people in the right direction. It was wonderful having you on our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find a transcript of today's episode, along with past interviews, on our website, storymarkpodcast.org. Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter, where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up, and you can also follow us on Instagram, at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrex Studios. 
iTrek is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit iTrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Patrick Emil, and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening, and let's go out. See you next time.